this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hi, this is Alice. We are taking a brief summer break from recording new episodes, so we have pulled a couple from the archives that we think you'll like. We will be back with new episodes August 16th. See you then. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is. Or try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Alice Burton, and fellow rioter Kim Yukura. We're recording on Friday, January 14th. Hi, Kim. Hello, Alice. How are you today? I am wearing um, something called a comfy, which (laughs) is described as a wearable blanket. Nice. And I think that's a good metaphor. (laughs) Is that just a Snuggie or is it something different? It's basically a Snuggie. And it's like a Snuggie, Slanket, whatever. It's got a hood and, oh. uh, yeah, yeah. And like a Sherpa lining. Oh. And, but it was, it was cold in, uh, the office where I record. So I put it on. It's, uh, I got it for Christmas and it's fantastic. The thing I never, I never, I never have a Snuggie and I've never had one, but I couldn't understand, like, why it was opened at the back. Like, that seems like then your back would get cold. Like, I would much rather have, like, mm. a robe or something like that. Yeah, no, this is very all-encompassing, uh, oh. and it's kind of designed so that if you're sitting in a chair, you can just, like, cover up your, your feet and whatnot. Oh. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I'm really disappointed now that I don't have one of those. I mean, you can buy one on the company's <laughs> website. <laughs> they are not a sponsor, but they should be. <laughs> that would be an amazing sponsorship. Yeah, it's been snowing all day today in Minnesota, so I definitely feel like – cozy and blankets and slippers and all that kind of stuff is is the mood right now i just love a a good pair of slippers i do i do too i buy buy a lot of slippers thinking that they will be the best pair of slippers and so now i have many great pairs of slippers but how many pairs of slippers does any one human person need like 14 because then you get (laughs) two weeks straight of different slippers every day yeah 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 seems like a lot of shoes i don't know I feel like we haven't talked to each other in a really long time. Oh, yeah. We had the holiday break. Yes. And we recorded our January 2nd, beginning of January episode prior to, like, the very beginning of December 20-somethingth. Yes. So, yeah, it has been quite a while. You don't know about all my comfy, cozy purchases that I don't. I- there's, there's so much that I have missed out on <laughs> hearing about because we have not talked in so long. Um, I got Ugg slippers, and they are oh. so comfy and warm. So are they, Do they look like loafers? Kind of. They're open at the back, which you would think, oh. oh, the back of my foot will get cold, but it doesn't. Oh. Yeah, I don't know how. I got um, cozy things. I got Bombas socks. I think that's how you say them. I don't know. They're just these like, very expensive wool socks, and they're awesome. Oh. I've seen those, but I have not purchased any. Yeah, they're so, they're so warm, but they're not super thick, and they like your feet don't get weird and sweaty. They're they're very good socks. Oh wow! I oh I okay. My last 
comfy reference, although I did get other things, uh, is um, I got jambies, which are basically a mix between sweatpants and joggers. So, like, they're really soft and you can wear them all day, but you can go outside in them and not feel really bad about yourself. (laughs) I knew that it was getting, like, deep in the pandemic when I was like, these are my inside pajamas and these are my outside pajamas. (laughs) Uh, And as soon as I, like, was making that distinction in my head, I was like, oh, dear Kim, you have been working at home for too long, and you need to, like, get yourself together. (laughs) Um, I think that that's fine, and (laughs) you should just lean into it, speaking as someone wearing a wearable blanket. (laughs) Today's episode is brought to you by Random House, Publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher. A story of first love that will break your heart. Wild Ground is a bittersweet novel that follows two teenagers whose all-consuming relationship is tested by the forces of class, prejudice, and addiction in a small English town. From the beginning, it has always been Neith and her beautiful, troubled mother, Chrissy. When they move to a small town to follow Chrissy's older boyfriend, it's a chance to start over. And on the first day in their new home, she meets Danny and the two form a friendship that gives way to the slow burn of romance as they grow up desperate to escape the confines of their world and the forces that hold their families hostage, like substance abuse, poverty, and racism. Now, this is perfect for fans of things like normal people, euphoria, and sex education. It centers working class women in small town England. It's steeped in the dialect and lyricism of Northern England. So make sure to check out Wild Ground by Emily Usher. And thanks again to Random House, publishers of Wild Ground by Emily Usher for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books for Young Adults. From number one New York Times bestselling author Jennifer L. Armentrout comes a book I have to tell you about. It's Half-Blood, and it follows Alex and her mom who have spent years on the run from The Covenant, a school where their pure descendants of gods hone their powers and half-mortal teens train to kill demons for them. When her mom is murdered, Alex has two options. She can become a servant for the pures or work twice as hard to catch up in her training. The second option seems easier, but it gets a little complicated, you see, when pureblood Aiden becomes her personal trainer. So falling for Aiden isn't her biggest problem, surprisingly. As demons close in, she must fight to stay alive, even while others around her are dropping dead. So again, Jennifer L. Armentrout does the thing when it comes to romance, fantasy, adventure, all those things. Other books are Blood and Ash, A Shadow in the Ember, all those good things. Make sure to check out Half-Blood by Jennifer L. Armentrout. And thanks again to Bloom Books for Young Adults for sponsoring this episode. All right. So this week we are going to do an episode that we normally do a little bit earlier in the year, which is a look to books in the first half of 2022 that we are excited and looking forward to. And it's weird. I was trying to put together this episode and I feel like I am much less aware of the new books that are coming out in the first half of this year than I normally am. And I'm not really sure why. Um, Have you felt that way or you feel like connected? Um, That's a good question. Yeah, I guess I haven't seen like I've I've seen a lot about books coming out this month, so January. But for things coming out a little bit later, no. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know if like 
I'm just not as on social media as I normally am, and so I'm missing some of that or what. But um, I still found a bunch of books that I'm excited about. So never fear. We have a lot to talk about. I just... This just just felt different. So, anyway, uh, the first book on my list is one that actually just came or came out last week, but I haven't read, and I figure since we're not doing January new releases necessarily, it was worth talking about. And that is "Let's Get Physical: How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World" by Daniel Friedman, uh, which came out January fourth from GP Putnam Sons. And this is a book that is a blend of reporting and personal narrative, which is my favorite, that looks at the history of women's exercise culture, uh, which just sounds. Really fascinating. So uh, premise of the book is that like today, exercising is sort of this like billion dollar industry that all people are expected to sort of like take part in, or at least it's not weird. But uh, it wasn't always this way. For a long time, sweating was considered unladylike. And people grew up believing, girls particularly, grew up believing that physical exertion would cause their uteruses to fall out. So uh, it wasn't until the 1960s that um, women began to sort of embrace fitness and like make it part of their lives in a more systematic way. So uh, in the book, Friedman looks at the history of fitness culture, looking at the people who helped make it happen, the different exercises that have come in vogue and out of vogue over time, um, and looks at like the origin stories of like the exercise movements, um, starting particularly in the, the 60s and then moving forward from there. So she talks about... Um, the invention of bar in the swinging 60s, the promise of jogging as liberation in the 70s, the meteoric, meteoric rise of aerobics and weight training in the 80s, the explosion of yoga in the 90s, and the ongoing push for more socially inclusive fitness culture that celebrates everybody. So I just think that sounds really fascinating, and I love books that dig into things we think we know about, but that give them a new history. So uh, that is Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World by Danielle Friedman. Well, yeah, I was excited about this one, but I haven't had a chance to look at it yet. It also does have a really great like neon pink cover, which I love. This is true. Of the uh, sort of nostalgic lookbacks, uh, at least in terms of aesthetics, I am glad that we've gone through a whole like 80s, early 90s phase because the whole neon thing is great. Mm -hmm. Agreed. My first pick for this is, okay, I have, <laughs> I feel like I I, I uh, went off track from how I normally pick books because, well, I'll, I'll explain why. So this is comedy, 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 drama, a memoir by Bob Odenkirk. I don't really know anything about Bob Odenkirk. However, people <laughs> love Bob Odenkirk. That's true. Like so much that when I saw this book was coming out, I was like, there's no way I can't not talk about that was so many negatives um basically i had to talk about it because I, when he had his heart attack i felt like my my twitter feed went through this mm -hmm. massive anxiety attack and i was a little bit floored because again i i know who he is i i recognize his face i know that he was the father in little women and everyone was surprised that he showed up for that and then <laughs> What was the other thing? Oh, he is in season nine of The Office. He's kind of like mm -hmm. guest stars as like a new Michael Scott. And then Pam doesn't take the job. Uh, spoiler alert. But other than that, I, I don't really know his career. But in his memoir, for those of you interested, which surely based on demographics, some of you must be. This is him talking about his very lengthy career, uh, which has gone from comedy clubs in Chicago to, you know, becoming a writer and doing uh, things like Mr. Show. He wrote on Saturday Night Live, where, um, you know, there was, you know, that 
motivational speaker sketch that Chris Farley mm-hmm. did. It's like very famous. So he did he like worked on that. And then he ended up being on Breaking Bad. And then of course he did the spin-off show uh from Breaking Bad that I don't remember the name of. Is it like Call Me Better Call Saul? Better Call Saul. I was gonna say Call Me Al. And I was like, <laughs> that's a Paul Simon thing. <laughs> Anyway, Better Call Saul, which is the spinoff from this. So he, his career has just gone from this, hence the the title with the comedy, comedy, comedy drama, is because he's, he's been doing this dramatic turn uh, in a literal sense. So again, if you are into Bob Odenkirk, why would you not be excited about this? It's out now and promises to just, you know, have his very particular voice which um, I think the description, if you check that out, uh, will kind of like lay that out in really clear terms. So again, comedy, 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 drama, a memoir by Bob Odenkirk. I'm glad you talked about that one. I did not realize Bob Odenkirk was writing a memoir. Uh, I feel like that one would probably be good on audiobook if he reads it, which I assume he's going to. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. I think that'd be good. Uh, all right. So my second pick is a memoir, uh, Manifesto on Never Giving Up by Bernadine Evaristo. Uh, so Bernadine Evaristo won the Booker Prize in 2019 for her fiction book, Girl, Woman, Other. Uh, and at the time, she was the first black British person to ever win that prize, which is kind of absurd. So um, this nonfiction book is uh, her nonfiction debut, and it is an account of her life and career as she, quote, rebelled against the mainstream and fought over several decades to bring her creative work into the world. So she writes about her childhood as one of eight siblings with her Nigerian father and Catholic white Catholic mother. Um, she talks about how she helped set up the first black women's theater company in Britain, reflects on her queer relationships in her 20s, and then recounts how she kind of moved ahead trying to write the books that she wanted to see in the literary world because she didn't see them being written. And so the d- description calls it an unconventional memoir and inspirational text, which I think sounds really interesting. Um, I don't know a lot about it beyond that, but I do really love kind of the all of the pieces that the, the summary mentions about her life and the things that she's interested. And I think fiction writers writing memoirs are always interesting to me just because they usually have really beautiful writing styles and I appreciate that too. So I think this one just sounds interesting. Um, I haven't read her fiction, but I think I like the description of this one and so I'm looking forward to picking it up. And it's Manifesto on Never Giving Up by Bernardine Ivaristo. That sounds really good. I keep meaning to read Girl, Woman, Other because know, it's too. been on so many lists and yeah. like I've seen the cover everywhere. And yeah. Okay. So this is another one of hers to uh, to add on there. Okay. My next pick is The Urge, Our History of Addiction by Carl Eric Fisher. Fisher is a professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia. He's an addiction physician. And this is one of those sort of combination, um, you know, like, here's my story, but also going into the history of this. So the context is not only the opioid uh, overdose crisis that we have been dealing with for what seems like forever, but has been in minimum decades, but also Fisher himself ended up um, dealing with his own alcoholism and had this sort of uh, a frequent story where he ended up losing a lot of things as a result of his addiction and then, you know, sort of dealing with treatment. And But in order to kind of make sense of what happened to him, he looked at the history of addiction. So this book is kind of the product of all of that, um, his own sort of work with this. And then looking at 
centuries of addiction history, which um, looks at medicine and science, but also literature and religion and philosophy and sociology, which I love books that, you know, like have these sort of cross-discipline looks into the histories of things, where you just get to see it from different angles and how it's been talked about throughout history. And I mean, if you look at literature, for sure, I mean, is it the Odyssey where they have the island of the, the Lotus Eaters? I don't remember. I know that Tennyson did a poem about it, but I think it's referencing the Odyssey. No one make fun of me if I got it wrong. <laughs> Imagine those nerds. <laughs> so embarrassing for you, Alice. Anyway, so um, this I, – I, I like all-encompassing histories when they – I still have middling feelings about things like the history of salt. But something <laughs> like the history of addiction I feel like can be – genuinely helpful for us sort of contextualizing this problem that is happening uh, to such a a huge degree and is probably increasing during these times when we are all supposed to be kind of, you know, indoors and it's harder to have support at times. So again, that is The Urge, Our History of Addiction by Carl Eric Fisher. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that like the encompassing history where it comes at it from like a multidisciplinary way has a lot to say for stuff that's more like conceptual rather than sort of like, I was going to say granular, (laughs) which which made me think of salt, but like more. Yeah, we got puns over here. More tangible. I think that's a really good point. And yeah, that sounds really interesting. So that's a really, really good pick. My next pick is is called South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation by Imani Perry. Uh, And this one got on my list because I've seen it a few different places getting really good reviews. And I read the summary and I thought that it sounded fascinating. So um, this is a look at, it's an argument for why you need to understand the South in order to understand America. So basically the book premise is that there are a lot of things that we think about that signify the South. So like the Civil War and the book Gone with the Wind and plantations and college football and Jim Crow and slavery. But those things, while true, sort of elide over some of the the specifics and habits and idiosyncrasies of different regions in the South and that the South as a whole is more complicated than we sort of tend to see. And so uh, Imani Perry is a black woman and a native of Alabama. And in the book, she returns to the region to try and look at it with a new perspective. So she kind of travels around and has different encounters with uh, visits different places and people and tries to illuminate or share stories about Southerners from all different walks of life that kind of give a more nuanced and um, expansive look at what the South actually means. And so her book has immigrant communities, contemporary artists, opportunists, enslaved peoples, unsung heroes, her ancestors, and her own experiences. Uh, And I just, I... I'm always for books that help us see things in a way that we haven't thought of before. And I think I myself am uh, prone to sort of painting the South with a kind of a broad brush. And so I appreciate the idea of someone who lives there trying to come back and give us a new perspective on it and help see some of the stories that we don't get to see or we gloss over when kind of making sweeping assessments of a particular place. So... South to America, A Journey Below the Mason-Dixon to Understand the Soul of a Nation by Imani Perry. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is really good. And thanks for mentioning it because I had not heard of that one yet. 
My next pick is, uh, I picked this because (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't, I was going to say, I I don't support this, but it keeps coming up. So, again, I feel like maybe I should learn about it. And for that reason, okay. It is the Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze by Laura Shin. Uh, Shin used to work at Forbes. And uh, in this goes through the beginning of Bitcoin and sort of cryptocurrency as a as a thing. Um, it really focuses on uh, Vitali, or known as Vitalik Buterin, who was born in 1994. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> Everything is weird. Um, he is a Russian Canadian programmer and co-founded Ethereum. Uh, as well as Bitcoin Magazine in 2011, which uh, means he was 17 at that time. Uh, And, okay, so Ethereum is basically, okay, Ether is another cryptocurrency, and Ether is uh, the second, it's like Bitcoin is like the number one cryptocurrency, and then Ether is the second cryptocurrency. And beyond, I hate that I have learned that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, my brother recently uh, explained to me what he had to do an, an illustration about Bitcoin. And he explained to me why it is bad for the environment, which is that it takes ah. a lot of processing power and therefore a lot of energy, um, similar to NFTs. So it's just it's just bad. So if you want to learn more about its history and what's going on with it, It is, again, the Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze by Laura Shin. I'm super glad you mentioned that one because every time I hear anything about cryptocurrency, I just think it sounds fake. Like, it just sounds like a thing that people have made up. And every time I say that to my dad, he's always like, yeah, like, basically all money is made up. And I was like, yeah, but not really. Uh, But I don't really understand it. He doesn't exactly say that, but I feel like that's what he's thinking as he's trying to, like, explain to me why there's, like, dog coins or something like that. I sound like such a dope right now. But anyway, I'm really glad you talked about this one because I do feel like I should probably learn a little bit more about it, even though I think it's garbage. So that's good when a book can help you learn about a thing that seems bad and then you can prove that it is bad (laughs) because you read a book about it. Uh, that's what I read for us to prove I'm right. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Um, all right. So my next pick is called There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price by Jesse Singer, which comes out in February. Uh, and this is a book about the history of accidents that looks at how they've come to define everything that's wrong with America. And this sounds fascinating to me. So um, I'm just going to read the first part of the summary because I think it's really good. So it says, we hear it all the time. Sorry, it was just an accident. And we've been deeply conditioned to just accept that explanation and move on. But as Jesse Singer argues convincingly, there are no such things as accidents. The vast majority of mishaps are not random, but predictable and preventable. Singer uncovers just how the term accident itself protects those in power and leaves the most vulnerable in harm's way, preventing investigations, pushing up debts, blaming the victims, diluting anger, and even sparking empathy for the perpetrators. So um, the book looks at how the rate of accidental death is increasing and how that is having... um, an increased effect on the poor and people of color who bear the brunt of the violence and the blame for that, while other people who are more powerful use the idea of an accident to avoid consequences, which if if you think about that for too long, like it's very upsetting. 
And so this looks at how investigates like tra- accidents as tragedies and that how they can be more um, how they can be addressed. So uh, she looks back to turn of the century factories and coal mines to highways, hospitals and Superfund sites and drawing. She like, pulls, draws connections between all these various kinds of things that we call accidents, but that really are preventable and don't have to. And when we call them accidents, we don't think about them as seriously. And so um, it's a book about power and how power affects those who have it and those who don't through the lens of accidents, which I think just sounds really fascinating and like makes me angry the more I think about it too deeply. So I have to imagine this book is going to be kind of a frustrating one, but also very important. So There Are No Accidents, The Deadly Rise of Injury and Disaster, Who Profits and Who Pays the Price by Jesse Zinger. That's a really interesting pivot yeah, in thinking. Right? Isn't it? Like now I'm thinking of all the times I've called something an accident, like a car accident. Like often it's it's not really an accident. Like there's a reason it happened and why. So, yeah. Side note from that, are you watching the sitcom American Auto? We watched a couple episodes. Yes, it is. It's really great. <laughs> um. So I – I think that it definitely has some, probably some work to do, but Mm -hmm. I love Anna Gasteyer as Mm -hmm. the CEO of like a huge car company so much Mm -hmm. that I'm like, I don't care about any flaws it has. I will keep watching. I agree. I agree. But anyway, I could see them very easily, right? Being like, this was an accident, but it was just them making a car poorly. Yes. Yeah. Just as an example of that. Today's episode is brought to you by The Safe Keep by Yael Vanderwalden. This new debut is an exhilarating, twisting tale of desire, suspicion, and obsession between two women staying in the same house in the Dutch countryside during the summer of 1961. It's a powerful exploration of the legacy of World War II and the darker parts of our collective past. It's mysterious, sophisticated, sensual, and infused with intrigue, atmosphere, and sex. The Safe Keep is a brilliantly plotted and provocative debut novel you won't soon forget. Also... It's literary enough if you like literary fiction while still being spicy enough for certain corners of book talk. You know the corners I'm talking about. And while at first there's a cool detachment to these characters and this story, the heat builds and builds until it explodes into a tale of twisted desires, histories, and homes, and the unexpected shape of revenge. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to The Safe Keep by Yale Vanderwalden for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Diana Dixon has a busy summer and no time for tall, gorgeous hockey player Shane's shenanigans. Because you know what? If they shenan once, they'll shenan again. So she thinks she knows exactly who he is when he moves into her apartment building. But turns out Shane's sick of hookups and tired of being on the rebound after his long-term girlfriend called it quits. But when his ex comes back into the picture, he needs a plan. And who better to play his new girlfriend than his sassy new neighbor? So a fake relationship might be perfect for Diana's own ex issues, but Diana is used to living by the rules. Will she learn that when it comes to love, rules are meant to be broken? Make sure to check out The Dixon Rule by L. Kennedy. L. Kennedy is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with over a million copies of her books sold. So this is going to be another banger, y'all. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. 
Uh, all right. So uh, I'm going to go again. I've got another pick. Uh, this one comes out in March. It's called Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation by Maud Newton. So this is a book about, a personal book about genealogy. So the, the author has like, her says her ancestors have vexed and fascinated her since she was a girl. Her grandfather came of age during the Great Depression and was said to have married 13 times and then been shot by one of his wives. Um, her great-grandfather killed a man with a hay hook and died in an institution. Um, as she looks back in her family, mental illness and religious fanaticism are part of that on her mother's side, all the way back to her, one of her ancestors being a witch in Puritan era, Massachusetts. Uh, her father was an educated man who extolled the virtues of slavery and obsessed over the purity of his family bloodline. Just a lot of, a lot of stuff. So her parents eventually, uh, Maud's parents eventually divorced, but she kind of grew up with sort of an anxiety that she would pass along some of their like complicated um, family dynamics with her own family. And so she saw a lot of that same anxiety in like friends and other writers and artists. And so she started to dig into her genealogy, looking at her grandfather's marriages, uh, her accused witch ancestor, um, her ancestors' connections to slavery and genocide, and then also started to look through family secrets and DNA. She looks kind of all over the place trying to find, trying to understand, like, why, what is all this stuff in my family history? And so the book is a, a, how she tried to use genealogy, this hobby that has grown into a really big industry through, like, DNA testing and all of that to try and understand the secrets and contradictions of her ancestors. So uh, it's a personal memoir, but I also think that connection to like genealogy and how we can use it and how it can tell us things that we may not want to know or that are complicated to find out. I think that that part of it sounds really interesting to me as well. So that is Ancestor Trouble, A Reckoning and a Reconciliation by Maud Newton. Oh, dang. That, uh, that sounds really good. Yeah. So that's not interesting. Like lots of stuff there. There is lots of stuff. Shoot. <laughs> I've been, like, making my list of books that I'm kind of interested in reading this year, and then it obviously keeps getting longer, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm like, am I actually going to get to these? I know. That's the, that's the hard part every year is you're like, can I read all these? No, I cannot. What shall I do? I'm supposed to start my next Dickens book, which is uh, Dombey and Son? I oh. think. But it's really long because it's from his, like, early to middle period. And anyway, my point being, there is not enough time in the day, but... Ancestor Trouble sounds so good. Shoot. Okay. I will maybe bump that up the list. <laughs> like, add it to the list, and I'll also bump it up. Oh. Okay. So this is a particularly in my wheelhouse type of book, and I get to do it because of the Bob Odenkirk book. Um, <laughs> also, this is our podcast, so. Okay. It is Murder on the Mountain, Crime, Passion, and Punishment in Gilded Age, New Jersey by Peter J. Wash and Patricia L. Shaw. It's out April 15th from Rutgers University Press. So you also get to be virtuous and read from a university press. Basically, Margaret Clem and John Meyerhofer were uh, immigrants who came from Bavaria. They immigrated to New Jersey in the 1850s and got married and started a farm in West Orange, New Jersey. So... John Meyerhofer went to, uh, he fought in the Civil War, came back and seems to have had uh, what would now be called some kind of PTSD and seemed really changed. And he started abusing Margaret and just not really working. So she ended up um, having to manage the farm. And one day, uh, like, 
about 15 years after the Civil War, John uh, wound up dead and he had been shot. So Margaret and she had a farmhand who was a Dutch immigrant named Frank Lamons. Uh, they were accused of the crime and Margaret ended up being the last woman to be executed by the state of New Jersey. And remember, again, this is the 1870s, probably going into the 1880s with the trial. But so it's basically the book is that's the that's the summation of the case and what happened. But the book goes into was she actually this like calculating murderess? Like, what were her actual motivations? Was she innocent? Even, you know, what actually happened? So this is, um, I love books that go into these cases, usually trials, huh. that were really big news at the time. And then, of course, we get completely forgotten about them um, because no one was uh, who was alive then is around anymore. I feel like a few of those cases filter through the years, uh, like Leopold and Loeb or something, but... Uh-huh. This I absolutely had not heard of. So, again, that is Murder on the Mountain, Crime, Passion, and Punishment in Gilded Age, New Jersey by Peter J. Wash and Patricia Elshaw. Bonus points for a good subtitle. I agree. That is a really good subtitle. Although, like, my dumb comment is something about the phrase Gilded Age, New Jersey really makes me laugh. (laughs) Aww. I don't know. It's just, like... Something about that just really made me laugh. So, but the sound, that does sound very Alice. As soon as you started describing it, I was like, ah, yes, I see why this is on the list. <laughs> very good. Very good. Mid to late 19th century is uh, my time. Although I'm also going into the early mid 19th century. I'm expanding a wow. little bit in really, my interest. You're really stretching there, Alice. I, I <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> 1830s and 40s. A lot was going on. Great stuff. Uh, All right. So my next pick is, I think, probably like right exactly in my wheelhouse also. So I shouldn't really be making fun of you about that one because you could say the same thing about this. Uh, which The book is Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole by Susan Cain, which comes out in April. So the reason this one was on my radar, first of all, is that Susan Cain is the author of Quiet, which is a book about why it is awesome being an introvert. And it explains introversion and extroversion not necessarily as like shyness and excitement, but rather as people who gain energy internally or through quiet versus people who gain energy from outside stimulation, which is a really, was a really important book to me when I read it because it was the first one where I finally understood being an introvert in a way that was really helpful. So um, I think she's a really great author, and so I'm really excited to see what else she's going to do. And so she um, uses kind of the same approach that she did for Quiet to look at why we experience sorrow and longing and the surprising lessons these states of mind teach us about creativity, compassion, leadership, spirituality, mortality, and love. So bittersweetness is this idea is, quote, a tendency to states of longing, poignancy, and sorrow, an acute awareness of time passing, and a curious, curiously piercing joy when beholding beauty. So it is a state of recognizing light and dark and how those things are connected together. And so she talks in the book, she argues that it's not just a feeling that we can have. It's a way of being and a way of um, sort of observing the world and being in it. And so she looks at how the idea of having a bittersweet state of mind helps us uh, look past personal pain and look towards collective pain and collective joy and how we can sort of use that to connect with others and try to like make a better world. And I just think all of that really sounds resonant right now in particular. And since I loved the way that she wrote about 
uh, introversion in quiet. I think that the way that she approaches this will probably be similarly great and similarly like brain bending for me. So Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole by Susan Cain. Oh, that's like inside out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're like, maybe I need to be sad. Yes. That is a great analogy. I like that. That movie was helpful for me, but also I can't watch it partially because I don't think I like the imaginary friend. It's very sad. It is very sad. Yes. It's true. A lot of, lot of Pixar movies. A lot of feelings. And unlike it, well, Encanto is also sad, but Encanto is like amazing and I would oh watch it many, many times. My sister just watched that and she has been like telling me to watch it every day since she finished. And I was going to do that tonight after we finished recording. So I'm glad yes. you said this. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so good. Okay. Anyway, my next pick is another true crime book, but uh, a little different because we're talking about the 20th century instead of the 19th. <laughs> Also, it's like less about the crime, I think, and more about what culture did with it. Okay, let's let's talk about it. It's scoundrel how a convicted murderer persuaded the women who loved him, the conservative establishment, and the courts to set him free by Sarah Weinman. This comes out February 22nd from Echo. Sarah Weinman did The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner, and the novel that scandalized the world, which is about the girl that she says Lolita was based on. And that was really good. So I'm really looking forward to this. This is about how in the 1960s, Edgar Smith was uh, in prison and sentenced to death for the murder of the teenage Victoria Zelinsky. And he started writing to William F. Buckley, who was the founder of National Review. And I think my dad would probably be like, oh, that's what a conservative used to be. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the sort of changing of anyway. I think he was seen as like a very intellectual conservative. So Buckley, <laughs> sorry, the description says who refused, this is not my opinion, who refused to believe that a man who supported the neoconservative movement could have committed such a heinous crime. Oh, that's a real blind spot for him. I know, began to advocate not only for Smith's life to be spared, but also for his sentence to be overturned. This happened in The Simpsons with Sideshow Bob. <laughs> Which, now that I learn about this case, I'm starting to think The Simpsons might have based. <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is all coming together for me. So, in the, basically, so, okay, so Edgar Smith is released and he tries to kill someone again. So. Obviously. Oh, obviously! Oh my gosh. Anyway, okay. So, in, uh, it says, Wyman has uncovered a psychopath here who slipped his way into public acclaim and acceptance before crashing down to earth once again, much like Sideshow Bob. So not to poke fun at this situation, because obviously it's upsetting. But basically, I am fascinated by this book. Again, Weinman's a really good storyteller. And just this idea of not focusing as much on the crime, but on the this weird situation that and, and like you're saying, people's blind spots, because it's not just, you know, it's not like because Buckley is a conservative, he has this. It's like everyone, it's like, oh, you are, you support my ideas, mm -hmm. so you must not be a bad person. But in this particular case, he definitely was. So kind of looking more into that and what was going on and what was, I'm interested in finding out like what actually, like what wheels were turning that made it happen so that his sentence was overturned. Mm -hmm. Like it couldn't just have been... Buckley's yeah. influence. Unless maybe it was. I don't know. 
Anyway, so that is Scoundrel, How a Convicted Murderer Persuaded the Women Who Loved Him, the Conservative Establishment, and the Courts to Set Him Free by Sarah Weinman. That sounds like a really fascinating book because, like you said, like it's parts of it are like, yeah, of course, duh. But as the subtitle suggests, right, there are lots of people involved in what might have happened and how did all of that come together and what like systemic ways did things fall apart to allow that to happen. Yeah. Must be very interesting. Yeah, that's a great pick. My next pick is called Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change by Angela Garbus. Um, And she is the author of a book that I think we've talked about before. Um, It's called Like a Mother, A Feminist Journey Through the Science and Culture of Pregnancy, which Mm -hmm. did you read that one? Yeah. Yeah. So this is, um, I don't think it's necessarily a follow-up, but it is related to that book in the topics it's covering. So, um, and it is uh, connected to the pandemic in some ways, right? Because she looks at the state of caregiving in the United States and how mothering can be a means of social change. Um, And so I think one of the things that the pandemic has showed us is that mothering is a like truly difficult and also essential thing that we are doing for children, obviously. Um, and so looking at how um, the increasing weight that's being placed on mothers and caregivers and the total lack of a social safety net for them, the book ponders the question, how under our current circumstances that leave us lonely, exhausted, and financially strained, might we demand more from American family life? And so she looks in the book about assumptions on care, work, and deservedness and looks at what mothering is and what it can be. Um, She shares her kind of family's history and complicated relation to caring for other um, motherhood in like a global context, um, how motherhood is connected to work and the increasing demands that mothers have, working mothers particularly. Um, And so it is just a look at kind of the power of mothering and how that can be connected to larger ideas around social change, which I think is – really interesting now and related to a lot of the things that we're learning and unlearning and exploring in the way that mothers exist in society. So Essential Labor, Mothering as Social Change by Angela Garbus. Yeah, I liked her first book. I feel like, so my my one friend who just, she had a, I was going to say she just had a baby and her child is like four years old, <laughs> <laughs> maybe three. Um, so I gave that to her and I think she had some issues with – so the the reason that Garbus wrote that book at first was she had an article on breastfeeding and how beneficial it is um, and looks at, like, the science of it. And mm. I think my friend had – she took some issue with the conclusions drawn from that. But mm. there were other points in it that were still good. So I am I am interested in this. I thought she was a good writer. Good note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my last pick is Poor Richard's Women, Deborah Reed Franklin, and the Other Women Behind the Founding Father by Nancy Rubin Stewart. It's out February 8th from Beacon Press. I love Beacon Press. And this is – so Benjamin Franklin, I've never really been interested in, but I always remember that line in The Office where Michael tells the Benjamin Franklin impersonator, <laughs> Benjamin Franklin, you were kind of a sleazebag. <laughs> and i feel like this kind of gets into that so it's mostly talking about deborah reed franklin who was uh franklin's common law wife and partner for almost 45 years and sort of getting more into who she was because you know a lot of the time in these histories prior to let's say the 1980s they would just be like oh and then there and then there was also his wife Mm -hmm. and so 
this talks about um, how she had to raise his children and manage his finances and fight off angry mobs at gunpoint, which I think a lot of women, particularly in the 1700s, had to do based on personal reading. Anyway, so this talks about, uh, it goes into historical research, but then also personal testimony and talks about not only Deborah Reed, but also the other women that Benjamin Franklin was involved with, uh, including Margaret Stevenson, who was a widowed landlady in London, Catherine Ray, who was uh, a New Englander that uh, he exchanged letters with, and uh, Madame Brion, who was a French musician. Oh, also, uh, I'm not going to pronounce this correctly, but Madame Helvetius, who was a friend of the um, philosophes of pre-revolutionary France. And so pre-1789, which makes sense because Franklin was um, an ambassador to France. That's what Hamilton tells me, yes. Fantastic. Okay. I was like, I think this is right. But yeah, great. So uh, essentially, it's one of those like, hey, you have heard about this founding father, but here, like, here's all this backstory. And here are these women who were a major part of his life. Um, And I I just like books like that. So Poor Richard's Women, Deborah Reed Franklin and the Other Women Behind the Founding Father by Nancy Rubin Stewart. Yeah, I'll go on. Yeah, I love books like that, too, that give a different perspective on famous people, particularly the women that we haven't gotten to hear from. I think those are all very good. All right. And so uh, those are just some of the cool 2022 books that we're excited about. There's a ton more coming out. Those are from sort of the first half of the year. We'll do another one of these episodes probably in July to look at the second half of the year. But lots of good books coming out, which happens all the time and we shouldn't be surprised about. And yet every time there's like more and more good books, I'm always just just really glad that there are, (laughs) even if it's sort of overwhelming too. Yeah. And so with that, we will wrap up as we normally do by talking about the books we're reading uh, right now at this very moment. Um, So I, over the last, like, few weeks, have gotten very obsessed with the online game Wordle, uh, which is just a game where you, like, try and guess a five-letter word. And every time you guess a word, it gives you clues about which letters are right and whatever. And every time you see it on Twitter, people are, like, sharing these little emoji boxes of their Wordle scores that I'm very obsessed with it, which then got me obsessed with crossword puzzles because Wordle only lets you play it once per day. And so then I was like, I need more word games. And so I like started paying for the New York Times crossword puzzle app, which I'm also not very good at, but I've done a lot of them lately. And so that is a long introduction to the book that I'm going to pick up uh, this weekend, which is Thinking Inside the Box, Adventures with Crosswords and the Puzzling People Who Can't Live Without Them by Adrian Raphael, which is just a history of crossword puzzles. And um, I just, I'm very in a like crossword puzzle mode right now. And so I'm really jazzed to read a book about the history of crossword puzzles. That's all. That's really cute. <laughs> I've played Wordle like the last three days. And yeah, it's fun. That's good. I don't know. I'm just very like it's I love that it only lets you do it one time per day. Like you just do your wordle and then you're done with it. It's fun to like think of words and I don't I don't know. I just I really look forward to it every morning now. That's yeah, that's really nice. It it's like a very wholesome It is. uh internet trend. And it's just like free and I don't under there are people on Twitter that are starting to like have backlash to wordle that are complaining about seeing people's like wordle boxes and I'm just like dudes, come on. Let people have this thing, okay? Like, just let us have this. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've kind of, because I used to be 
one of those sorts of people, you know, where it's like, oh, everyone's into this thing. Uh But I have very much been converted to the everything's really hard and just just let people enjoy things. Let people enjoy their things. Yeah. Um, I am reading A Visitor's Guide to Victorian England by Michelle Higgs, which I don't even know if I need to comment on that. It, uh, no, real quick. It is basically, it seems like Higgs did a lot of research into primary sources and then is like, oh, if you were traveling to Victorian England, here is how you would find a hotel and here is where you would buy clothes. And I really, really love that because a small part of me keeps thinking at various times, well, what if I were suddenly transported to this time in history? How would I survive? So this makes me feel a little more competent. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. Thank you, Jen. And if you have a few minutes, we would love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. That helps people find us more easily. And then while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I'm Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. <laughs>